Thank you for that, Rachel. Um, good evening, everyone. My name's Lockie, and it's a privilege to be here tonight and to be worshipping with you and also to be bringing us the message tonight. So tonight I'd like to start by telling you about the life of a man called Nabil Qureshi. Now I wonder, have any of you heard of that name before? Uh, yeah, that's a few of you. Have, do any of you recognise him when you see his picture pop up on the screen? Maybe. Um, or have you read his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus? Uh, if you haven't, I would completely recommend it. It's a very, very good read. And in this book, he talks a lot about his childhood, what it was like being born into a devoutly Muslim family, what it was like being born as the son of um, a man in the US Navy, how hard it was to be constantly on the move from place to place as he followed his dad's deployment, how his faith in Allah and his understanding of Islam grew as he became older and studied more, how he was taught ways of defending Islam, especially against us Christians, and how to probe and question us. About a quarter of the way through the book, he recounts a story when he's in year seven. So he's in Latin class one day. Now he's just sitting there, not paying much attention to the teacher. He's actually doing his Spanish homework. Um, and suddenly, one of the girls in his class turns around and asks if she can ask him a question. Now, this girl's name was Betsy, and she was the Christian of the class. Anyway, Nabil says yes, and so she asks him, Nabil, do you know about Jesus? Just like that, bam, go Betsy. But then, reading the next few sentences that he wrote, it just crushed me. So he writes, now I knew she was crazy. We're in the middle of Latin class. All the same, I immediately gained respect for her. Why had the other Christians never asked me this question? They did think I needed Jesus to go to heaven, right? Were they content with letting me go to hell, or did they not really believe their faith? And I just want that question to hit you guys as hard as it hit me when I read that. Were they content with letting me go to hell, or did they not really believe their faith? How would you respond if someone asked you that? Maybe there are some people here tonight who have asked that question in the past. Maybe some of you are asking that question now. Maybe some of us really need to wrestle with that. Why am I not telling, Jesus, telling people, telling my friends about Jesus and the gospel? Do I not really believe that he is the only way for someone to be saved? Or do I not care, about, care enough about them to tell them? I would argue that it's a bit of both. We've forgotten what the gospel really is what it means for us as believers, what it means for our friends and our family who aren't believers. Maybe we can articulate the gospel in 30 seconds, and that's great, and it's true, but have we really let the truth of the gospel grip our hearts and change us? A wrong understanding of the gospel leads to timidity and being ashamed of what we believe. This leads us to being apathetic about sharing the gospel with others. So tonight, Paul is going to remind us of what the gospel really is. And he's going to show us 
how understanding this can move us from a place of apathy to a place of action. So would you all pray with me as we start? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you so much for your word. We pray that tonight you would get all the glory as your word is preached, that you would be touching our hearts and reminding us of all of the things that you've done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how many of us have ever written an essay? Most of us, right? I guess some of you are having flashbacks to school or uni, not so good flashbacks, I imagine, either writing it all the day before it's due, or stressing because you're 200 words over the word limit, or struggling to find really wordy ways to explain simple concepts because you're 200 words under the word limit. And I wonder if any of us have ever had our marked essays given back to us. And you get it back and you read it, and there's a big, bright red pen question at the bottom. What was your point? It's easy to get carried away researching and writing, and the main point gets lost in all these intertwining threads of thought and logic. And this is why an introduction, which states clearly your main point, is so important. And Paul agrees. Paul, at the beginning of this letter to the Romans, he makes his point, main point very clear. So straight after his introduction, talking, introducing himself, saying hi to the, the church in Rome, he goes, bam, this is what I'm going to be talking about. This is my main point. This is what I want you to remember. If you don't remember anything else. So this main point, which Paul talks about, is found in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 of the letter to the Romans. And it's what we're going to spend most of tonight looking at. So let's start by reading verse 16 together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And what Paul says here is that the gospel is the power of salvation. It's God's way of saving us from our sinful human condition that puts us in a wrong relationship with him. And I think we all recognize, either consciously or unconsciously, that there's something wrong. Something's wrong with the world. Something's wrong with us. Just look around the world over the last hundred years. All the wars, the terrorism, the genocides, hatred, racism, discrimination. But how do people respond to this? With more hatred with rioting and looting and lying, with bigger weapons, blaming people, pulling people down. There's something wrong. And the world seems to have this hope that as technology evolves and as people in power change their views, things will get better. But all that's happened is this hatred is channeled to a different victim now. Technology's great but it also makes it so much easier to do wrong things. The, the atomic bomb allows us to kill so many more people like that. Smartphones are awesome, but how much easier does it make bullying people? And the list goes on and on. This technology that promised salvation hasn't bought our world the peace that we've so desired. And it's not just looking at the world outside that shows our brokenness. Looking inside does too. 
We know deep down that we're not great people, perfect people. We know that there's no way that we could measure up to a relationship with the perfectly holy God of the universe. No matter how hard we try, no matter how often we say, today, I'm going to be good, inevitably we mess it up before lunchtime. We get angry at the guy who cuts us off in traffic. We tell a lie. We look lustfully at someone. We get annoyed at God because something goes wrong in our lives. We get jealous when our friend gets a higher mark on a test than we do. Or we get arrogant and proud when we get a higher mark than our friend. Or we do none of these things and we become self-righteous. I'm so good, look at me. There's just no winning on our own. And God knows that. And that's why he had a plan. He loves us so much and desires so much to be in a right relationship, with, for us to be in a right relationship with him, that he sent his only son to take away the sin of the world, our sin, so that we, through his strength, might not have to live like that anymore, so that we might live in a right relationship with our heavenly father, so that we might be forgiven and saved. And this gospel, this good news that Jesus has done what we had no hope of ever doing by ourselves, this shows us the power of God in saving us. There is no other way except through Jesus. And this gospel, this good news, it's available to us through no work of our own, through no merit of our own. All we need to do is believe and have faith. This is good news for everyone. See what Paul says? For all who believe. All. Everyone. It's for both the Jew and the Greek. Ollie talked last week about how there was a rift in the church in Rome between the Gentile Christians and the ethnically Jewish Christians. The Jewish Christians believed that they had to, that the Gentile Christians had to follow the Old Testament laws to be true followers of God. And of course, the Gentiles obviously didn't think that way. And Paul's saying here, he's saying that the gospel is for both the Jews and the Greeks. There's no prerequisite for this salvation. No matter the age, their ethnicity, what they've done, if they have a power, a position of authority, no, it doesn't matter. The gospel is for them. And that applies to us today too. The gospel is for everyone. And I know this has been said to us a million times, but we need to say it again and again. The gospel is for everyone. It's for the boy who's grown up as a devout Muslim. It's for your sibling who's a staunch atheist and hates the idea of God and religion. It's for your friend who hasn't been to church in years. And it's for you who feel like you're pushing God away and you're not sure whether he loves you anymore. It's for you who have intellectual questions about the whole concept of God. It's for you who are going through immense suffering and God feels so far off. God loves you so much that he wants to bring you out of this darkness, this sinfulness. And he wants to bring you into a right and proper relationship with him. 
He was even willing to sacrifice his son Jesus, part of himself, for that to happen. Isn't that the most amazing thing? Doesn't that give you hope and confidence? Doesn't that make you realize what our non-Christian friends are missing out on? Isn't it something we can be excited and confident in sharing instead of timid and apathetic? But how does this work? We're still sinful and broken. How can we come into the presence of a holy God? Paul answers this in, in the next verse, in verse 17. He says, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, there are two aspects to the idea of God's righteousness. Firstly, his character aspect of righteousness, and then his work in the gospel, how that is his righteousness. So let's start with his character. What does it mean for God to be righteous? Tim Mackey from The Bible Project describes it as the fact that God always does justice, what is right and what is good, but also that he is faithful and just to fulfill his promises. And the story of the gospel shows these aspects of God's character to us, these aspects of God's righteousness to us. Take, for example, his faithfulness and justice to fulfill his promise. So we see all throughout the Old Testament that God promises salvation for his people from sin. From God's promise in Genesis 3 that one of Adam and Eve's descendants would be the one who crushes the head of the serpent, to Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant on whom the Lord would lay the iniquity and the sin of us all. We see again and again and again God saying to Israel, I have a plan. The Messiah is coming. Trust and wait. And this, the coming of Jesus the Messiah, the message of the gospel, this is the culmination of that plan. God's promises have been fulfilled. It's a bit like waiting for a delivery in the post. I'm sure a lot of us have done much more online shopping in the last few months than we'd be willing to admit. And so we can relate to this a bit. Imagine that someone you trust has said that they're sending you a parcel, right? And you're really excited, you really want this. The thing that they're sending you is going to make your life much better. And as the week goes by, you're checking every day in the mailbox. Is it there yet? Is it there yet? Where is it? Is it coming? Then another few days go by, then a week, then two, no sign of it. And now you're checking every few days instead of every day. You're losing excitement. You're starting to wonder, to question, did they ever send it? Has something gone wrong with the delivery system? Have they got the wrong address? Was your friend just joking around and can you really trust them? And then finally it comes. You get the parcel. All of a sudden you're joyful again. Your faith and your trust have been regained. They've come through. And that's what it's like with God. He has come through on these promises that he has promised all throughout the Old Testament. No matter how much Israel lost faith, he's come through. We can have confidence in God's faithfulness to do 
what he has promised he would do. And this should encourage us to trust his promises for us, that Jesus said he'll be with us always, that God said his word will never go out and return to him empty. This joy that we have, this confidence and trust, this should move us from a place of apathy and uncertainty to a place of action and confidence. We've seen him come through. We can have confidence in God's righteousness, in his faithfulness to do what he's promised us. But the verse doesn't stop there. Paul also answers that question that we had before. How can we unrighteous people, we sinners, come into the presence of a holy God? The gospel is also God's revelation of his offer of righteousness to us. Because of Jesus, he now gives us the chance to be covered by Jesus' perfect righteousness instead of our own sinfulness. God no longer counts our own sin and our own brokenness against us, but he sees it as having been dealt with on the cross. But even better than that, he counts Jesus' perfect righteousness, which was displayed through his life and through the cross, he counts that to us. Isn't that amazing? Paul says that this righteousness that God that the gospel has revealed is revealed through faith. It's given through nothing that we can do, nothing that we have done, but only solely through us having faith and trusting in the promises of God. That when Jesus said, it is finished, it was in fact finished. This righteousness is from faith for faith. Or as a footnote in the ESV says, it beginning and ending in faith. Not good works, not moral deeds, not keeping of the law, like the Jewish believers were arguing. Purely faith. We are saved by God's grace through faith. To finish off, Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. Or, again, the footnote says, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. Paul here, he's repeating his point. This salvation of God, our chance to actually live, it comes when, by our faith, we are given the righteousness of Jesus. And it's also important to note that it's not the size of our faith that matters, but it's the object of our faith. Tim Keller has said, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. So now we've looked at what the gospel really means for us, what it really means for everyone, how it's the power of God to salvation, how through it God's righteousness is revealed to us. But how can this knowledge move us from a place of shame and timidity to confidence and sharing the good news? Seeing that we're now on the same page as Paul when it comes to understanding the gospel, 
let's have a look at the way this understanding impacted Paul's life and how it played out in his life and in his ministry. What steps he took and what we can take out of that and apply to our context today so that we can be moved from apathy into action. So in verses 8 to 15, the first big chunk of tonight's passage, we see three main ways that Paul's understanding of the gospel shaped his life and shaped his ministry. In verses 8 to 10, we see that Paul was a man who prayed a lot. He put a lot of emphasis on prayer. In verse 13, we see that Paul desired to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to evangelize them. Finally, in verses 11 and 12, we see how Paul was excited to share the gospel with other Christians. But before we dig into this, look at what Paul says in verse 14. He says that he is under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and foolish. He's under obligation. He has so fully understood what the gospel means. He's so fully been transformed by the truth of this gospel that he can't help but share it. He feels obligated to tell people of the good news of Jesus because he actually understands that everyone needs it. How inspiring is that? How inspiring is that? It's often said that we can see what we care most about by looking at the things we pray most about. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's prosperity, happiness, health. The opening openings of Paul's letters show us really clearly what he cares about most, the church. Again and again we see him encouraging the churches he's writing to, confessing that he's praying hard for them. Praise that they would be made strong in the gospel, that, they might, that he might have the opportunity to come and preach to them, to strengthen them. I wonder how often we do that. How often do we pray for opportunities to share our faith with others? I know for me, it's not nearly enough. Occasionally, there'll be a few days in a row where I ask God, please give me the opportunities to share my faith. Please open some doors. But inevitably, it slowly disappears from my prayer life. It gets displaced by things that I care more about. But here we see Paul say that he prays for this church in Rome, to which he's never been, by the way, without ceasing, always. What an encouragement. What a challenge to us to be constantly in prayer for each other, for our brothers and sisters here, in our country, around the world, and for opportunities that we might share what we know to be true, the good news of the gospel with our friends. And when we pray and ask God for these opportunities, they appear. Our eyes are opened to the many ways that we could be sharing the gospel. Paul's prayer was answered. He had many, many opportunities to share, to teach, to shepherd. And we do too. I think of last week with Psalm on the couch. 
telling us how she makes the most of every opportunity that she gets to tell people she's a Christian, to tell people what she believes. What do you do on the weekend? I, I go to church. What are, you, what are you doing tonight? Oh, I've got a Bible study group with some friends. Who knows what conversations these few words could lead to? There are opportunities everywhere, and we just brush them off and don't make the most of them. But this understanding that Paul has given us of the gospel, it makes us excited to share, to make the most of these opportunities. Because this is good news for them too, no matter who they are. We want to show them what it's like living in a right relationship with God, how good and how awesome it is. We want to share with them what God has done for us and what God has done for them. And you never know. Nothing might come of it. When Betsy asked Nabil about Jesus, he didn't immediately become a Christian. He didn't immediately understand the gospel and dedicate the rest of his life to teaching and sharing that. That happened years down the track, decades even. But all that time later, when he'd been through all of that, when he was writing his book, he remembered that event. A seed was planted there that it took years and years for other people to water and to cultivate. But that seed was still there. We might not be reaping the fruit from our evangelism. Maybe that's not our job. Maybe we're just called to plant the seeds. But maybe that scares us a lot. Maybe going up to someone and starting a conversation, talking about our faith, talking about Jesus, maybe that's, we feel that's a little bit too hard. Maybe you have no idea what to say. Maybe you're worried that, oh gosh, what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? What do I do then? What do I do then? What can you do? Paul says that he is excited to go to Rome to share the gospel with the church there, with those who are already Christians. We can think, what? That doesn't really make sense, sharing the gospel with Christians. It's so easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking that the gospel is only relevant for salvation, that the non-believer needs to come into contact with this gospel, give his life to Jesus, be transformed, and go on to bigger and better things, and that the work of the gospel is done. It's relegated to salvation. But that's not what Paul seems to be saying here. He says that being constantly reminded about the gospel by other Christians and reminding them yourselves is mutually encouraging. We grow stronger in our faith as we share and talk about the gospel with other Christians, not just with unbelievers. I'm sure as we share the gospel with each other, as we encourage and be and are encouraged in return, as we become more and more comfortable and confident sharing with each other what Jesus is doing in our lives, the hope we have, then it's going to be easier and easier to start talking to your friends who don't know Jesus about these same things. You might not have all the answers to their questions, but that's okay. Maybe what they really need to see is how God is at work in your life. Maybe that's what they need to hear. 
Maybe they need to see the incredible difference that it makes for you being in a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. So our evangelism can start here. It can start tonight in our body of brothers and sisters. Reminding each other of the gospel and in turn being reminded by people around us. So to finish tonight, let me share a poem with you by a man named Paolo Arimado. He says, I've heard the gospel a thousand times, in a thousand forms. No matter, preach it to me again. I hunger, I tire, I sigh. Preach it to me again. It is my food, it is my rest, it is my sweet embrace. Preach it to me again. Will you have me starve by the lack of it? Tell me of my sin, I beg. Tell me of the sun. Tell me of our fountainhead. Tell me what he's done. I pray that we might all have this posture. A hunger for the gospel. A desire to hear it again and again and again. Never to be so filled up that we think we don't need it anymore. I pray and I invite all of you to help one another meet that desire, that hunger for the gospel. I invite you to preach the gospel to me again. Preach it to each other again. Don't stop. Start tonight. Share what God's doing in your life. Remind one another of what he has done. Encourage one another away from apathy towards action. Pray for each other. Let's do that now. Would you pray with me, church? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this gospel that Paul's talking to us about. Thank you for the work that you've done in bringing all of us to yourselves. And thank you that we can be confident in our position before you because we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. We repent and we're sorry. We ask you to help us and to forgive us for all of the times that we've been ashamed, that we've been timid, that we've been apathetic, that we haven't cared enough about our family and friends to to tell them of the good news of Jesus. We pray that you would remind us every day of the truth of the gospel, what it means for us as Christians and what it means for those who don't yet know you. We pray for opportunities to share this hope that we have, this good news with those who don't yet know you. And we pray that you would give us the boldness to grab those opportunities with both hands and make the most of them. Pray that we would be sharing the gospel with one another here tonight, over the next week and indefinitely on into the future, that we might be mutually encouraged and built up in our faith hearing how you're at work in other people's lives and sharing how you're at work in our lives. Thank you again, Jesus, and pray that all the glory be to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.